I give illustrated talks on the history of the comic strip sometimes, and it always surprises people when the next one I bring up is Mickey Mouse. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Well, hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Last week, you were giving a history of comic strips, and I was really learning a lot, including how many of these strips carry on to this day. I mean, these are old, old strips. You're telling me that the Cats and Jammer Kids is still running, began in 1912. Right, so it's over a century. Yeah, Gasoline Alley started in 1918, and somebody is still keeping that thing, right. uh, still pumping those out. And and uh, the next one you were going to talk about is Little Orphan Annie. And, you know, we've had movies based on this that have come out very recently. Um Based on the musical. Yeah, based on the musical, which is, of course, based on the strip. These are bits of history that just continue to be uh, culturally relevant. I have a mixed feelings about Little Orphan Annie. I've, it's fascinating to read. It's just amazing. There, It's addictive. It's very difficult to drop a storyline and not want to know what's happening next. Mm. It started in 1924. And unfortunately, most people know about Little Orphan Annie from the musical Annie with the exclamation point and uh, is cheerful. You know, everything will be be better tomorrow and so on. The thing is that Annie was a tough little kid. The name comes from a poem called Little Orphan Little Orphan Annie, which had nothing to do with this strip. I don't know. He just Harold Gray borrowed the, the title. And a lot of it is Annie battling with being taken into an orphan's home. She's always mistreated or almost always mistreated when when the authorities get hold of her. And, of course, part of that is just Gray's libertarian dance in which he, he just doesn't like these institutions of any kind. And part of it is necessity of getting Annie out on the road so she can have adventures to make stories in the comic strip, not just be having a dull time in the, in the orphanage. But it was a huge, huge success. And it was the beginning of a tendency, which I call comics noir, like the noir films of the 40s, but much earlier. And these were stories which were really terrifying sometimes. And Annie goes through awful adventure she's always meeting people who are either trying to murder her or are murdering other people there's lots of death and mayhem annie herself is a very strong character in that she she'll punch a bully in the nose who's a lot bigger than she is and has uh, helped to set traps to catch spies and she catches one guy and strings him up with a rope by his feet um She's not just this meek little victim who is endangered by the villain. She actually is actively combating the villains in many cases. And uh, the stories had very long arcs that really grabbed an audience, made it extremely interesting. But Gray could not resist uh, propagandizing sometimes. He uh, railed against labor unions, against the New Deal, and socialism, leftists in general, didn't much like politicians generally. And uh, I always find, well, I don't want to say, I find some of that pretty annoying, but his depictions of the characters are really 
great and the the stories are extremely involving and he runs into a lot of nice people and you see the basic decency a lot of people it's, he also is against child labor laws and annie is always working and, and preaching how you know kids who just sit around and have their parents take care of them have it good but they're soft and they're not fit for real life she's grown up over the years she started out maybe eight or so and and in the current version she's supposed to be 12 and and of course she runs into and she's taken in by daddy warbucks who has got the name that indicates his job he's an arms manufacturer and that's that's what he does for a living he has lots of other businesses as well and uh, he's, he's extremely nice but he's always having to go off on some emergency or other and leaving annie in the hands of somebody who should be trustworthy but isn't or somebody who is trustworthy but who gets swept out of the way by consequences and circumstances and, and annie finds herself on the road and abandoned and uh, threatened by all kinds of dangers. What's really innovative in having a little girl be the adventurer. This is like uh, Huckleberry Finn in a way, only she, well, she has a lot in common with Huck, except she likes to work really hard. And the idea of having a girl not be just a victim, but the actual uh, adventurer, the one who seeks out adventure and, and always with her dog, Sandy, as her accompaniment the trend in recent decades for killing off superheroes could have been foreshadowed by the fact that daddy warbucks more than once is reported to have died either been killed or died of a disease and you think that's the end of him but of course he always comes back the broadway show is so much more sweet and sentimental and and to me just sickeningly gooey uh, than the strip that i think it totally misrepresents what the comic strip is like it was a very popular radio show between 1930 and 1942 and had a huge audience um, children mostly it was a 15-minute show 15-minute radio dramas were quite common back in the 30s and 40s and there were movies and dolls and uh, a lot of other things that spun out of Little Orphan Annie. Uh, after Gray's time, the strip continued under various hands, and the current ones are, had an interesting history. What happened is that the pair of guys, usually comic strips will have two people working on the the person who writes the script and the person who draws the pictures. Um, some, like Peanuts, were a one-man show, but in this case, there were two of them. And they got her involved in a typical adventure where she was kidnapped by a, a genocidal maniac and taken off to, to Latin America, where she was almost certainly going to be killed, which you find a lot of times in Lower Vanani. And just as they were getting into this story arc, the newspaper syndicate informed them that they were going to cancel this trip. It, it was only being carried by about a half dozen newspapers. Loss of interest was wide. And they said, OK, we're doing it. And so the, the, the guys drawing the strip elected to leave her in captivity with the threat of death hanging over her. And uh, their motivation was evidently in hopes that somebody would feel we've got to rescue Annie and that some other syndicate would pick up the strip and continue it. Oh, well, this wasn't successful. This happened in uh, 2010, I think, was when she was uh, abandoned. And now in 2016, uh, the syndicate has begun rerunning old Annie's from 2005 by the same two guys that, that abandoned, were forced to quit in 2010. And the strip is called Annie rather than Little Orphan Annie now. Mm-hmm.
But an interesting ending to this story happened in the Dick Tracy strip. And I'll talk about Dick Tracy in a minute, but just to finish with this particular story, the current creators of Dick Tracy, who are really terrific, and, and Dick Tracy has gotten all kinds of awards and as a, a modern comic strip. I don't think a lot of people are aware it exists, but it's it's really beautifully drawn and really interesting they introduced annie into a sequence and they actually had dick tracy travel in time wind up back in the 1940s and encounter her and free her from captivity and put her back in in the world so that was a, a really nice rescue for annie dick tracy of course um starts in 1931 and, and he is the one uh, this is Chester Gould. Gould was the one who really innovated of making a very dark, grim setting indeed. Dick Tracy, the, the tough guy detective with these grotesque villains that he's always coming up against and a lot of violent death. Often of villains, most of the villains never go to trial. It's, it's rare that Tracy ever sees anybody put in jail because they always get killed or almost always get killed, uh, and a lot of innocent characters. There are many crime victims that die, and he will create uh, very sympathetic characters, and then the villains kill them off. It's not quite Breaking Bad, but it's it's a very grim kind of comic strip, although it did have funny elements. And by the way, the funny papers and comics uh, suggest humor. Not all strips were ever meant to be humorous, although at the beginning that was mostly the case. But by the 30s, serious comic strips were pretty common and dick tracy was one of the ones that had a huge influence the thing that was not really great was chester gould's drawing i mean he made uh, the villains look suitably gr grotesque but it's it's notably awkward he just wasn't as good an artist as some of the other people there are a lot of people who praise his style and talk about how influential it was and so on yeah but somebody doesn't know quite how to draw things as well as they might dick gould's dick tracy ran for a long time into the 60s and what happened is that it began to get dated somewhat he anticipated a lot of things most notably the the wrist radio and now our cell phones do even more things than his wrist radios ever did and in the late 50s and early 60s he got a put a science fiction bent into the strip and had them communicating with people on the moon and introduced the moon maid as a character and it, it kind of went off the rails and he also he was basically conservative like harold gray and of course pro-police very much and uh, began to get hostile to student activities and so on and the strip really kind of ran out of steam and, and ideas in the late 50s and the early 60s i've just been reading volume 19 of the complete dick tracy 1959 to 1961 that there's another volume i haven't got yet volume 20 um <laughs> and the introduction was hilarious because usually these introductions are written by real fans who try to explain what the great qualities were of the strip that they're dedicating all this to these are not cheap books by the way they're, they're lavishly produced and the whole introduction is filled with complaints about how dumb various parts of the story how lame the humor is and how silly the characters are and so on he's they're counting on fanatics like me continuing to buy the books no matter how awful they get i must say i have mixed feelings at this point mm. so the the guys that revived the strip were mike curtis and joe staten began in 2011 and they they're the ones that had dick tracy rescue annie they've also introduced other characters in including uh getting i think the phantom completely un unrelated 
involved in their strips as well. Now, I give a illustrated talks on the history of the comic strip sometimes. It always surprises people when the next one I bring up is Mickey Mouse. Mm. Uh, Mickey Mouse started, of course, as an animated Disney comic. Um, spun off from Oswald Rabbit. His, his first uh, successful cartoon character was Oswald Rabbit. He just changed the shape of the ears and a few other things and turned him into a mouse. Um, because like these comic strip artists who wanted to retain the rights to their characters and, and left the newspapers they began with, uh, Disney didn't have the rights to Oswald Rabbit. Um, the Disney Corporation has since reacquired those rights, by the way. So Oswald is available again after a long, long hiatus. But uh, Mickey Mouse was, from the beginning, a, a scamp, a, a troublemaker. If you look at the very earliest ones, he's, he's a wild and crazy kid who's doing... He wears short pants because he's rather childish and uh, he's just pulling pranks right and left. And when they decided to do a newspaper comic strip and hired Floyd Gottfriedson uh, to do it, at first they were all based on the animated cartoons and they would simply follow the action more or less closely with the the film version. But then Gottfriedson uh, needed more material. And decided to start doing a sequential story in which Mickey would go through adventures. And eventually starts getting tied up with, well, an early story uh, about uh, evil landlord preying on widows and so on. And he becomes uh, a fighter for the right and a protector of the weak. He gets hooked up with Goofy as his best friend. And uh, he becomes eventually a detective. Not professionally, but he's he's always chasing after villains, uh, most famously Pegleg Pete, who is this fat, crude pirate, unshaven, who is a cat. So this is another of these mouse turns on cat kind of stories. And uh, for a long time, the Disney Corporation uh, had Pegleg Pete, and then they decided, well, maybe that was not a good thing. So they just called him Black Pete for a while and got rid of the Pegleg. And, and then they said, well, then people might think he was black in, in a negative way associated with African Americans. So then he became just plain Pete. But I noticed that in the latest incarnation, he's uh, Pegleg Pete again. Hmm. Anyway, um, these stories, again, had very long storylines and often a good deal of violence, although people usually didn't get killed. Uh, one of the reasons that he can always fight Pete is that uh, Pete gets arrested, but then he promptly escapes and, and winds up in some other scheme. But there are other villains as well, most uh, notably the Phantom Blot. This is one of the great comics creations. It's just this ghostly shape and all black sheet. It goes through long adventures before his uh, the person underneath. And he's been revived several times. A few years ago, the Disney Corporation put out a new computer game um, that was set with Disney characters, Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse and stuff. Instead of the usual childish approach, they went back to these old comics noir adventures and and had the phantom blot in there and so on and the initial reviews were horrific people of course were expecting this cute little bouncing mickey mouse that they knew as a corporate logo and they had no idea what mickey mouse was like and his origins and uh, they wondered what horrible things the disney corporation had done what they were trying to do is pay homage to his roots and go back to the original what happened in the late 20s was that the a lot of school teachers and parents began to complain that mickey mouse was a bad influence on children because of his behavior so he became more of a bystander and then it would be uh, say 
uh, Pluto, his dog, who would be causing the trouble and, and he would be tis- tisking at him or Goofy would get into problems. And, and Mickey became more and more like a suburban dad almost. He even had a couple of nephews that he adopted at a certain point and they become the troublemakers. But Donald Duck was so much more successful at being an outrageous troublemaker that he became the designated star for Disney cartoons and eventually Mickey was phased out and as I say became the corporate logo and there are many many people who wear Mickey Mouse t-shirts and and have Mickey Mouse figurines around and so on and think of him fondly and haven't a clue what Mickey Mouse is about well the comic strips by Godfredson were terrific there were some wonderful long-form stories and those have been reprinted but eventually uh he was told people aren't really reading these long stories anymore make them gag strips as they call them so he switched back to the thing of having a daily joke that uh, was much less interesting although from time to time go in the other direction but when Walt Disney's comics and stories came out as a comic book in the 1940s it reprinted in serial form the old Floyd Gottfriedson's serials and that's when I first encountered them as a kid I had no idea they were much older than the time I was reading them in the 50s and uh, they were just absolutely mesmerizing and that was my introduction to Mickey Mouse and that's the world's introduction to Mickey Mouse if you travel around the world and pick up comic books you'll find that Mickey Mouse, the detective, the adventurer, the explorer, sometimes the troublemaker, is very well known all over Europe and Latin America and some other parts of the world as well. And there are many, many new adventures that have been created by artists from places like Denmark and the Netherlands and Italy. Um, and he's hugely popular. There's a, an, a comic supplement was in one of the main newspapers in Rome for many, many years called Topolino, which is a separate publication now, which is their name for Mickey Mouse. And these things are completely beyond the ken of Americans. Uh, The Disney Corporation still has the rights, but the adventures, the stories and so on are, are mostly done abroad. Some Americans have been involved in it. And there have been several attempts from mid-70s, I guess, or 80s, to the present of different publishers to revive the old Mickey Mouse and the Donald Duck and bring them back into an American audience. And they've never had a lot of success. The focus in comic books in this country is either you're in middle school girl and you're reading Archie comics, or you're reading superheroes. And then there's, of course, the graphic novel, which I consider a whole different genre and also worthy of interest. But Americans, I think, have no notion how big and how varied the Mickey Mouse theme is. In fact, in English, the term Mickey Mouse is used to refer to something childish and trivial. That's just a Mickey Mouse solution for our problem. Whereas Mickey Mouse is brilliant and powerful and ingenious. Often in the old days, was seen wielding a gun. They don't do that anymore. But he has science fictional adventures, and he's just extraordinary. There's one Italian sequence in which the Disney characters, including Goofy, Mickey, uh, Donald Duck, and several others, are taken on a journey through Dante's Inferno. (laughs) They go through the various layers of hell. There's a, a German one that's been done, which is a parody of, well, I read it in German, I think it, may have been Italian originally, but it's uh, a parody of Lord of the Rings involving 
Mickey Mouse and so on. So there's this huge realm out there. And I've collected from all over the world uh, Disney comics from places like Czechoslovakia, Poland, Argentina, China, uh, Singapore, not, not mainland China. Japan, no. In Japan, they know Mickey Mouse only as a logo. And there's tons of backpacks and pencils and T-shirts and everything you want with Mickey Mouse picture on them, but they don't know anything about the Mickey Mouse stories. Anyway, to me, that's it, one of the great creations. And it started in the newspapers, although his life has continued on into comic books. The current publisher, IDW, is doing uh, Donald Duck, Scrooge McDuck, Mickey Mouse, and revived Walt Disney's comics and stories, and is doing a great job. And most of them are translated from other editions. Some recent ones came from Iceland, Denmark. Denmark is where Egmont, the worldwide distributor of Disney comics, is housed. Americans are just generally unplugged from this entirely and have no clue that there's this huge world of Disney out there. I think Americans tend to think of Disney as this American aggressive corporation which imposes its view on the rest of the world. And what we've got is a bunch of Europeans have taken over these characters and made them not European, but they have given them their own life that has nothing to do with American culture. But I really urge people, if you, especially if you have kids, but even adults can enjoy reading this, to check out uh, at comic book stores and look for these IDW ones. It would be a shame if, like other attempts in the past, this has collapsed. Well, I, I sense a theme here of these characters starting off as ruffians or outcasts or definitely outside of the social norm and making their mark that way and then getting co-opted just as characters. So you see Dick Tracy just staring at his watch <laughs> as, as an image or, yeah. or Mickey Mouse just standing there with one leg kicked out and smiling broadly and yeah. looking, looking very cute. Or you see Little Orphan Annie as a child in a musical play that's kind of charming and sweet and going all the way back to Buster and Buster Brown. Brown and these things are getting untethered from their roots <laughs> as as real hellions right and I don't want to get into Scrooge McDuck too much because he's my absolute favorite because he wasn't originally a newspaper creation at all Carl Barks created him for uh, Walt Disney's comics and stories and uh, he was sort of reinvented by Don Rosa starting in 1986. Mm-hmm. And Scrooge McDuck is famous all over the world to the point that a couple of Chilean scholars wrote a book, How to Read Donald Duck, by which they meant Scrooge mm-hmm. McDuck, um, who, from the leftist point of view, seeing him as an imperialist, um, although one of them later sort of recanted. The thing is that when, and when this book came out in the 60s, um, a lot of leftists were totally baffled. They say, well, who's reading these anyway? And they didn't realize that there were in Brazil and Argentina. Scrooge McDuck was far more popular than he was in the United States. And the Disney Corporation re- resisted including him as a character in animated cartoons for a long, long time. It took forever for them to finally say, okay, he doesn't belong just in the comics. He's he's actually part of our family mm-hmm. and, and came up with DuckTales. And the DuckTales are often based on old Carl Barks stories that are considered real classics. But I could talk for hours about Scrooge McDuck, so I better not. It just if you look at my computer, the hard drive has the image of Scrooge McDuck on it. <laughs> okay. So very differently, um, 
a little bit earlier than the Mickey Mouse ones was another heavily influential comic noir, and that's Terry and the Pirates by Milt Caniff. Caniff mm. is considered one of the graphic artists uh, that is the supreme artist in painting his strips. He actually used an ink and brush and was famous for using large areas of black. Uh, although the Sunday strips were in color, his real forte was doing the the black and white version. So you have deep shadows in a lot of them. Often it'll be night scenes and so on. 1934 to 1946. And it started out as being about this teenage boy who's the sidekick of Pat Ryan, who's a, an adult. And they're off on the coast of China having adventures on a ship. So it's a seafaring adventure. And Pat Ryan quickly kind of takes over. He's the more interesting character. And although the strip continues to be called Terry and the Pirates, Terry diminishes in, in importance and almost disappears. Um, it was uh, a very, very successful. Like Little Orphan Annie, downplayed the humor. There were jokey characters from time to time, but mostly the emphasis on high adventure and very complicated stories. And one of the most successful characters, maybe the most successful introduced, was the Dragon Lady. Many people know the term Dragon Lady. I have no idea what the original was like. She was a scheming Chinese woman pirate. Mm. At first, she appears to be utterly unscrupulous and does a lot of violence. Uh, but she also has a romantic side. She actually has a huge crush on Pat Ryan. So she alternates between threatening to kill him and, and trying to woo him. And uh, she's a very sexy looking lady. But then she sometimes acts heroically. She'll ally herself with Pat in fighting against other villains. And as World War II began to build up, as she became a ally of the Chinese against the Japanese, and this was when the Americans were still resisting getting into the war, and uh, the strip kind of paved the way for World War II. But at first, they didn't call the Japanese Japanese. They used some neutral term, and the newspapers wouldn't allow him to, to say that they were Japanese. And eventually, he got deeply into the war, and Milkanev started another sort of pinup strip for the uh, Army newspaper called Miss Lace uh, that he just did free. And he became uh, very strongly involved. He, he was never in the military himself, but he became kind of the favorite cartoonist of of the military during the war. The problem with Terry and the Pirates, well, it was a brilliant strip, and that's been all reprinted the whole set of 12 years, is that he didn't own it again. And so he left the newspaper. The strip was taken over by John, George Wonder, who continued it for 27 years. And then Caniff started another strip with Steve Canyon, who had left the military and started a civilian aircraft thing and then goes back into the military. And Steve Canyon is where I first ran into Mel Caniff. And he was invented to appeal to a female audience by being incredibly handsome and having many, many, many romantic adventures. And at first, it's adventure after adventure, and then more and more, it's love story, love story, love story. So, it, And he didn't have the kid sidekick anymore either. And a lot of people view it as kind of diluted. But the Steve Canyon strips are being reprinted now, and I think they hold up pretty well. They're not as good as the original. Terry and the Pirates for the most part, but they're pretty interesting. So another example of a strip who gets named after somebody who winds up not being its main character is uh, Barney Google. 
Barney Google with the googly eyes is a pop song in the 20s. And that strip was taken over by this hillbilly character called Snuffy Smith. And by the time I'm Barney Google, had entirely disappeared from the strip. And I always wondered, who's Barney Google? It's always about Snuffy Smith. And the strip is now called Barney Google and Snuffy Smith, still being drawn. It's amazing how some of these hang on. Yeah. In 1929... Elsie Seeger started Thimble Theater, which was uh, sort of a family comic strip about uh, a family named the Oils. And there was castor oil and, and olive oil and the other oils. It had sometimes continuous story time lines, and it was okay, but nothing special. And then this uh, one-eyed sailor came into the picture Ten years on, 1939, Popeye appeared and just completely blew everything away. Olive remained the only oil still appearing in the strip on a regular basis, although her, her brother would show up occasionally. And Popeye was the first superhero. Uh, he was amazingly strong. You could shoot bullets at him, and he just felt him like... A tickling and he could defeat the strongest villains and, and so on he became extremely popular and was turned into a very popular series of cartoons by the fleischer brothers and which you always see popeye uh, opening a can of spinach and swallowing a hole and then getting his superpowers from the spinach and beating up bluto his villain and bluto's always the villain and bluto is always trying to kidnap olive oil and this goes back to this long tradition you see in Betty Boop cartoons and others where the villain is capturing the female and there's there's a subtext that rape is involved. But, of course, they're trying to force them to marry them in the comic strips. Yeah. But that's not what was going on in the, in the comic strip in the newspapers. Bluto appeared in only one sequence. He was defeated. He disappeared. There were other villains that Popeye had to struggle with. Uh, the most interesting to me uh, being the sea witch who's this mysterious, uh, ugly character in a classic witch gown who lives on a tropical island and, and enchants people with her magic flute. Um, there's an, actually an animated feature uh, dealing with Popeye and the uh, magic flute that was made in modern times that's worth watching. He started doing very long, complex adventures as well. But, of course, with a comic slant, Popeye was always funny as well as being adventurous. He, he winds up with a, a kid to take care of called Sweepy, who is technically a baby, um, but uh, winds up being able to speak and have quite an interesting adventures on his own. And and then he introduces Wimpy in the strip, who takes over for a long stretch of time. Wimpy is this guy who's always kind of catch meals from other people and especially loves hamburgers and can eat whole, a whole cow's worth of sitting and uh, in england they still have a chain of hamburger restaurants called wimpy's popeye was not the most beautifully drawn of strips but one of the most entertainingly written and well worth reading in his in the original incarnation and there are some other artists who have done interesting things with popeye later Another strip that is very important is uh, Hal Foster's Tarzan. Tarzan's dated pretty badly. I noticed that there's a, a new Tarzan movie about to come out. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it because it's so politically incorrect at this point. 1928 to 1937, Hal Foster, a Canadian illustrator who had been a commercial illustrator and was a really skilled artist, took on the task of illustrating the old Tarzan novels. Uh, he did not own the rights. The, the Tarzan estate, Edgar Rice Burroughs' estate, told him, these are the stories you can use, and uh, we don't consider our stories to be these mere comic strips with speech balloons, so you can't use any speech balloons. You have to use just panels. 
panels with text. So you would write the story and you have to stick to the story as Burroughs originally wrote it. And that was something quite new. It had not been done before. And the interest in, in the Tarzan strips is the visual aspect of them because they were really beautifully rendered and especially the color ones. I think it may have been only a color strip on, on Sundays, in fact. But in 1937, Foster got fed up with having to dance to the tune of the Burroughs estate and his newspaper syndicate, and he decided to pr- create his own character, and that was Prince Valiant. Mm-hmm. And uh, Prince Valiant is still being done today. Prince Valiant is one of the very few strips that has had a long, long history and never really deteriorated. It shrunk. It used to be a full page, and it was a quarter page, and down to a third page, and I think it's a quarter page today. But it's still beautifully drawn and really nice stories, and it's best read collected because the, it moves at a rather slow pace, and there's lots happening, and if you can read a few months' worth at a time, you get more of a sense. more like reading a novel than anything else. I think Tarzan, most people think of automatically as this is a guy who's uh, the white man, who's uh, the, the hero, and then the blacks are the villains and so on. Not really. In most of the Tarzan adventures, uh, the Africans, natives are uh, good people or allies, and the villains are more often white. And that's particularly in the comic strips. However, there is one episode in which Foster has Tarzan allying himself with the pioneer Boers in South Africa fighting against the Zulus, mm. so which is certainly cringeworthy. Uh, he eventually died, and the strip was taken over uh, by Bern Hogarth. And um, I subscribed to... Tarzan comic books when I was a kid and it was they were I didn't know it at the time but what I was seeing was Bern Hogarth's the Hal Foster Tarzan was reprinted quite a few years ago now in hardcover editions that were pretty lavish and have been out of print for many years and so I collected them one by one as used books and I'm missing one volume the last volume and it's quite rare the only copies I've seen for sale are $300 and I am not going to spend $300 on it but that tells you something about the kind of market that this sort of thing has. Yeah, yeah. The strip that changed everything is Peanuts. Now, what year did, did Peanuts debut? So in 1950, Charles Schultz's Peanuts appeared. And this was the first really minimalist strip. He eliminated the backgrounds because the filling up the backgrounds of all sorts of complex detail had been a hallmark of American strips. But uh, during World War II, or paper shortages, the papers shrank and the newspapers, uh, comics became smaller and the newspapers realized they could still hang on to the audience that bought the papers to read the comics and they could include more comics in smaller space if they shrank the newspaper. And so the newspapers have continued to shrink and shrink and shrink and the comics continue to shrink too. Well, Peanuts was beloved. Of course, it's a brilliant strip. Uh, Schultz did wonderful things with his characters and became a huge cultural phenomenon. And ever since he died, they've been running reruns of older Peanuts strips. And then recently, there is even a second parallel early Peanuts from where the characters looked rather different from the very early 50s that is available too. And you can read both of those online. But what it did was to sort of reinforce the attitude that a comic strip doesn't have to be complicated visually. It doesn't need a lot of space. You could make your point in a very small format. And that simply was eventually the death knell for things like Dick Tracy and uh, Flash Gordon and, and all these others that depended a lot on a large 
uh, visual treatment. And there are some people who have fought back. Notably, Doonesbury has tried to lay down the law that can't be reproduced except at a certain size. And Bill Watterson's uh, Calvin and Hobbes was an attempt to fight back against shrinking comic strip as well and, and uh, was brilliant for a few years. He kind of ran out of steam eventually, I think, and uh, started to repeat himself, but it's loved very much. Unfortunately, a lot of people know uh, Calvin and Hobbes mainly from the decals they see on cars and other things and don't know that Watterson has never licensed the characters for any use whatsoever outside the comic strip. And those are all pirated and they do not reflect Watterson's ideas. So if you get offended by uh, an image of Calvin and Hobbes, don't blame Bill Watterson. Mm -hmm. He's just as angry at it as anybody else. One of the things that I notice some of the artists doing now is in the Sunday comics, they'll take the whole space that is allotted to them for, say, six or eight panels and turn it into two panels or even just one and then be able to restore some of the detail I could put in. One of my favorites being Red and Rover by Brian Bassett, who is a Seattle artist actually great strip for dog lovers but it's interesting and in it's set in the, the early 60s red is a, a newspaper deliverer and his life everything's very carefully calibrated to be about uh, the memories of people who are growing up in the late 50s and early 60s so that uh, i think it puzzles people a little bit at first and they say well wait a minute i was talking about him going up and looking at the satellites passing overhead as a pastime uh, something that not a lot of people do today well that's when sputnik was still around and, and other satellites and it was still a thrill so it's a tribute to the past and an attempt to recover some of the spirit of the old comic strips and and brilliantly done i think not as famous as it deserves to be well we'll look for red and rover and you're talking about some of the insistence on maintaining space makes me think too of the whole world of alternative comic strips yeah, well, underground comics are another phenomenon. I collected those, too. Yeah, that's for another show. But I but I think that uh, there's a lot of attention paid to detail, and probably some of what spurred underground comics is, is this uh, shrinking and shrinking of real estate allotted on the comics pages for some of these people that wanted better room for expression. And the shorthand way to refer to those is C-O-M-I-X. Yes. Comics. Exactly. Well, Paul, this is this has been great, uh, and I've learned a lot about the history of comics. I'm sure we'll be talking about comic strips again in the future, but this is a great baseline for us to start with when we do. Okay, it was fun for me too. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.